O God, surround us with your love and your mercy and your grace as the needs of this world confront us. Share your presence with people who need you far and and near, residents of the Middle East and Australia and of the southern United States, the Springer family close to us. Surround anyone who comes into this place of worship this morning with their own concerns. Surround them with your love. Help them to know that here in our community of faith, they are cared for. And as we open your word, help us to ask in a deep and important way what these ancient words have to say for life today, for church today, for the community that we share. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am never quite sure how to start a sermon on the book of Acts, especially given the concerns I've just mentioned. Acts is unfamiliar territory to many of us. It's not the Old Testament with its epic stories of prophets and kings. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the stories of the life and teachings of Jesus. It's not one of Paul's letters with recognizable quotations to live by. Love is patient. Love is kind. If God is for us, who can be against us? Acts is less familiar. And that's kind of ironic because the book of Acts may be the closest thing in the Bible to the experience we share together. Acts is about church. Acts is the story of the early church and what it was like for those people to form community together, and that's what makes it relevant to us. Acts is the story of all the things that happened in the earliest days of the church, but 2,000 years later, most of the issues turn out to be the same. The essence of it is that we as individual people have to figure out how to be church together. And we have to figure out how to be church together so that we can navigate life together. I'm going to begin this morning with a modern-day story about church, one that may not seem related to much, but then I'll uh, jump back to the book of Acts and the story that we read this morning, and I hope along the way, in both this modern story about church and the ancient one, I hope you will think about a question. What is most important? about people like us continuing to be church together. What is most important about the fact that we are church together? So first, the modern story. I have a friend and mentor named Tom. Tom is a visionary church leader. He's a pastor to one of the largest congregations in the Presbyterian Church, though you would never know it by talking to this humble man. 
About a decade ago, Tom was having breakfast with some pastor friends at a national meeting. They sat together discussing disturbing trends in the church, trends I've spoken to you about before. In the past 40 to 50 years, the Presbyterian Church has lost about 40% of our members. Similar statistics are true for the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and all of what we call the mainline denominations. More locally, here in Cincinnati, the Presbyterian Church is made up of 67 congregations. A few years ago, there were 80. We're closing two or three of them every year. And throughout the country, far beyond Cincinnati, the fastest growing religious demographic in our country is not people who are leaving traditional churches like this one for contemporary, contemporary ones. That trend, in fact, is flat. The, facts, the fastest growing group in our country is people who have no religious affiliation at all. People who fill out a survey and when it comes to religion, they check none. So a decade ago, as they sat at breakfast, Tom and his friends were lamenting this situation. They were talking about it. With one foot in retirement for this particular group of ministers, they noted that the Presbyterian church in which they began their ministry, it was a church that was largely built, known for things like building hospitals and schools. But lately, Presbyterians had become mostly known for arguing about sexual orientation. What happened? What happened? They were asking each other. These were creative people, not hopeless people. And out of their love for the church, they decided to do something about their conversation. They opened it to others, and a thing that has become called Next Church was born. Over the past decade, that first conversation at breakfast has developed into a movement a movement that includes national gatherings and ongoing ideas and strategies for congregations and leaders and creative training for people who serve the church. It's an amazing movement. It's not about fear. It's filled with energy and hope. It's a group of people who are excited to talk about where the church is going and what God is up to. And it's also a group of people who are there because they love being Presbyterian. At Next Church, people talk about ideas that are real. They talk about the growth of that non-religious demographic in our country and what it means and how they can be reached. They talk about how to let our neighborhoods know that there is vital ministry happening in these old buildings. They talk about the reality of the racial divides in our culture and why they exist so starkly on Sunday morning. They talk about how to be engaged in public issues without being trapped in partisanship. And perhaps most importantly, people at Next Church care about each other. It's a safe place where we listen and pray and worship together and encourage one another as we look for what God is doing in our midst. 
I'm telling you all of this because in the past year, it's been my privilege to co-chair this national movement. And more importantly, I'm telling you this because two months from now, 700 or so of our leaders will be here in Cincinnati for a national conference. And you're all invited. Any one of you can come and check it out. In the next week, we will be sharing publicity about the gathering, and it'll come to you in Knox announcements. You can find there how to learn more and how to uh, register if you'd like to join us. In order to know if something is good for the church, it's usually helpful to ask what it has to do with the Bible. And that takes this modern story about the church back to the story from the book of Acts. Acts is the story of a church in a world that is changing. It is the oldest story of the church trying to figure out what is it that we will we believe. It's a story about the church trying to figure out how to welcome new people and how the church should relate to the culture that surrounds it. In Acts, people argue about things like, what do you have to believe to be a Christian? In Acts, the people argue about, is it most important that the church grow dramatically or that it is a strong community with deep commitments? The time and place in the book of Acts was different from our own, but most of the issues are very much the same as things we talk about today. So today we heard one of the stories. It's a story that is part of a much longer story about two people. Peter, Peter, the same disciple we met uh, when he was following Jesus in the Gospels, and Cornelius, a centurion in the Roman army who is new to the faith. By the time of this story in the book of Acts, Peter has gone from being the blundering disciple we met in the Gospels to the standard bearer for the growing Christian movement. Peter was a lifelong Jew, and he had walked right alongside Jesus. He had all of the credentials to be the one making the rules in the young Christian church. One of the big debates in that early church was about people who did not have Peter's credentials, specifically folks they called Gentiles, people who were not Jewish as Jesus had been and who did not follow the law of Moses. People like Peter had not figured out what to do with these newcomers. Now I imagine to many of you that sounds kind of silly, of course. Peter should let the Gentiles into the church, and Jesus didn't believe that any of those prior credentials really mattered, yada, yada, yada. But consider for a moment that even in the church of today, we have plenty of standards like this, and we still think many of them are important. An example. We had a baptism this morning at the earlier service. In order to be baptized in a Presbyterian church, you or one of your guardians must be a member. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that just sounds unnecessarily exclusive and probably not what Jesus really had in mind. But consider for a moment that the baptism rule we have, which is a much lower bar than what existed in Peter's day, 
The baptism rule that we have exists because of the surprising number of people who call Jana or me every single month wishing for their baby to be baptized, not because they have one bit of interest in the Christian faith, but because they want their grandmother to stop bothering them about it. I could give you ten other examples, or more, of church regulations like these. They exist because a part of us is still very much like Peter. Peter, who functions in today's story as a gatekeeper of his religion, simply trying to be faithful to the tradition and to seek out people who are really committed, even as he watches a culture that is changing. Well, along comes the other person in today's story, the newcomer. His name is Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion. He's an officer in the Roman army, and he is not a Jew. And we are told these things because they would have given someone like Peter instant hostility and suspicion. But then we are told that Cornelius is a model disciple of Jesus Christ. He has converted and he has shared the message of Jesus Christ with everyone he can find in his sphere of influence. He gives generously to support the growing church and to support people who are in need. He has an active prayer life and he is as humble as the day is long. This is not a new member of the church who throws his weight around who gives a million dollars to the annual fund and says to the pastor, I'm wondering if you can do something about that organ. I'm not too fond of organ music. No. Cornelius is here to listen. He's here to absorb the community just the way that he finds it. He's dying to meet this Peter he's heard about and try to learn more about the way that Peter understands Jesus. So, cutting to the chase, to the thick of the plot, Peter ends up having his mind changed by Cornelius. You probably are not surprised by that. He opens himself up for the first time to the idea that Gentiles can be welcomed into the church. The thing I think is worth noticing here is the way Peter says it. There's humility that he expresses along the way. As one translation has it, Peter says, I really am learning that God does not show partiality to one group of people over another. I really am learning. I love that turn of phrase for Peter because it makes it clear that change is not easy for Peter. Peter is on a journey to understanding. He's trying to grow. He knows in his heart that change comes along, but he also knows there are parts of his tradition that are worth keeping. And he wants to be discerning about how to hold together the old and the new. He's open to change, but he knows it's not easy. 
I've talked with you before about the changes that are facing our church. Here at Knox, where our membership continues to grow, it is tempting to believe that these trends don't have anything to do with us. But there's something else that's important for us to remember about this church, about Knox Presbyterian Church. Most of our new members come not from that growing demographic of people with no religious affiliation. No, most of our new members come from churches like ours. Traditional churches that are struggling and declining, and people leave those churches and come here. This is not a sustainable future for the church. We have to pay attention to the way that the church and our culture are changing, and we have to take it seriously. It's about us. The good news for us here at Knox is that we are not completely at odds with the kinds of changes that are giving new life to the church, the kinds of things we talk about at Next Church. In the midst of the changes around us, we are not trying to nervously circle the wagons of Knox in fear. We are looking at several different ways of expanding our reach into the community. With each passing year, we are home to more and more community groups who call our church building home. We are building relationships around our city with churches and people whose circumstances are much different from our own. Churches that operate on a shoestring budget, in neighborhoods that are on a shoestring budget, where gun violence is something they pray about every single week. We keep seeking to be more welcoming to the LGBT plus community, understanding that we have not always done that well. Next week, you'll start hearing more about conversations our session has been having about the role of race in the church. Here at Knox, we are maintaining the importance of our spiritual traditions, and we're also asking how we can make Knox ever more relevant to the world in which we are living. We are doing the same kind of work that was done 2,000 years ago when Peter met Cornelius. And there is more work to do, a lot more work. The growing unchurched population, all of the studies tell us, the growing church, uh, unchurched population, they are not hostile to spirituality and they are not hostile to Jesus, but they are hostile to Christianity. They are hostile to people who refer to themselves as Christians. They think of us as judgmental and unwelcoming and hypocritical unconcerned with the real spiritual questions they are asking, and too concerned with maintaining our own institution. Friends, change is hard, but it is inevitable. Change is as inevitable in the church as it is in our own personal lives, and you know all about that. We evolve in our lives as parents and spouses and professionals. We care about different things and ask different questions about meaning when we are 20 years old than we do when we are 40 or when we are 80. 
We change because we are alive. The church isn't an old building. The church is a a living organism created by God and made up of human people, people who learn and who grow, who rejoice and who suffer, who yearn and who change. How will we, how will we be excited about what is new around us in the way of Cornelius? And how will we, like Peter, be the bearers of a tradition that is alive? How will we speak into the real situations in life where people are asking questions and where people are in need of prayer? How will we be present to that? These are the questions we must ask of ourselves and of God with a readiness to see where God is leading us and go. Amen.